Pulp MX Network Production. It's a different side of Moto. The stories of struggle, failure, and inspiration told by the people who lived through it. It's Kenny's Corner with Kenny Watson and special guests. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is Kenny Watson, and you are listening to Kenny's Corner. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank everyone for tuning in. And if uh, you have any criticism, good, bad, or indifferent, please hit me up at Vegas Dub on Twitter. And uh, well, what's the other one? Uh, Instagram. There we go. Social media. You got to get that in there. Well, anyways, this week, I would like to introduce... I guess his name could just say it all. Um, Jimmy Button, who has uh, been around this industry pretty much his whole life, grew up in Arizona racing. Uh, his dad was a big part of his program. His dad um, has been involved in the sport, and his mom to this day. They all have been around it. And uh, world traveler, been to the GPs, um, grew up in the old Antonez, Gaddis, you know, Emick, McGrath, all that, all those names. He's from that 90s era. I would like to welcome Mr. Jimmy Button. What's up, K Dub? Yeah, JB, how's it going, buddy? It's going good, man. Just a uh, just a beautiful Monday afternoon here in Southern California. Right on, dude. I gotta love your uh, your enthusiasm on life today, buddy. I like to. I like. <laughs> I love to hear that. Well, when you know, I'm I'm almost to start week six uh, of my recovery from back surgery so it's uh it's been like groundhog day every day for the last few weeks so it's uh, a little boring being kind of stuck in the house for a lot so anyways it's all good oh well it could be a lot worse but uh that's right anyways let's let's uh let's jump into this uh, little uh thing we're going to do today this podcast um first um if people really um really don't know your career they i'm sure they've seen you around the races and if they were new to the sport Let's go back to the beginning. Um, you know, you were born and raised in Arizona. Um, you were, um, I believe your your dad probably got you into racing because I know your dad worked at a Honda dealership or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. You were like one of the mini bike. I remember um, not too long ago going back and just going through YouTube and watching a Golden State National on YouTube and you were riding a... A CR eighty Amer- American Sports Cavalcade. Okay, can you explain that? Some, some somebody hits me up on that at least once every six months on Twitter or something, saying that they watched it. It was sick and it was cool. It was I was racing eighty expert. I want to say I was twelve somewhere around there, 10, eleven or twelve, something like that. And uh, uh, back in the day, Golden State uh, Nationals were a pretty big thing. And so the 80 experts raced on Sunday with uh, the 125, 250, and 500 pro guys. And then on Saturdays, it's all the amateur, normal amateur classes. But the 80 experts, we got to race with the big guys. So, so uh, at, tw- at, 12 that, years, uh, at 12 years old, you probably thought you were pretty sweet. Like, you know, being able to ride with your, with your childhood uh, heroes, you're like, oh. Dude. It was it was super sick, right? So I I was riding for Factory Honda at the time. And hey, did, did any of those guys ever come up to you and ask you about lines at twelve years old? You're talking to Johnny O. <laughs> definitely not. But the cool thing was is that you know not in all the races because those guys didn't go to all of them, but at some of them, 
you know, we were in the Honda pits, right? And so we would have our little, we had a, we had a, basically my whole amateur career, we had this little white Chevy van, not a box truck, just a white cargo, you know, just like normal white Chevy van. And, um, you didn't have the you pro, know, it, you didn't have the pro track trailer. I didn't have the, we didn't have the pro track trailer. We had a Chevy van and it was super cool because when those guys would show up, you know, they had their factory, you know, the Honda factory box vans. And so we got to park basically next to them. Um, wow. You know, and obviously we, I, like I had a job to do, like I was trying to win the 80 races against, you know, all those guys that you just mentioned, but you know, to be having like my 80 sitting right there and then right next to it, you know, at one point was, you know, Ron Lachine with that ultra bitchin' full blown works, uh, 125 that he had, or it was Ricky at one point later, you know, like when he signed an 86 or whatever it was and Johnny and all this stuff. And, and, and David Bailey, who, you know, I kind of looked up to uh, David and Johnny and Ricky and those guys so much and, like, tried to copy their style and the way they wrote and everything. And so then to be, you know, on those kind of two or three occasions during the year that you, like, were parked next to them and all these fans were, like, watching them, I was, even though I was right next to them, I was, like, one of those fans just, like, looking at them just going, oh, my God, you know, there's Johnny and he's got it says Johnny O and O show on his boot covers. And I mean, it was just super bitching. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, those, those were the days back then. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's crazy. Like the older I get and the older, like my friends get around me, I look back at those times and those, it doesn't seem that long ago. It's like, man, God, life goes by fast. Like it doesn't, it just seems like, you know, Two or three years ago, we were, you know, we were down in Daytona just hanging out, watching Factory Phil knock that guy out at the bar. You know what I mean? It's like, God, yeah. dude, it's it's like crazy. But go, get, yeah. staying, staying back at your amateur career, when you when you were on, you know, you rode for Honda, you were one of the Factory Honda guys. When yeah. you when it was time for you to move up, how did you get support when you first moved up to a big bike? And why why weren't you part of that whole pro circuit peak program since you were, you know, a Honda prodigy growing up or did you, was that that deal in like 90 or 89 where they made that big cut? Yeah, I basically got completely screwed. Um, so obviously I was, so I guess kind of go back to when I first started racing. Um, you mentioned my dad, you know, the Honda dealership and all that. Right. So obviously early on Honda didn't make a, um, Honda didn't make a 60. So the only thing that you could ride, you could ride a Yamaha or you could ride a Suzuki. And I started on a Suzuki RM50, and we rode that. That was just like the bike that I had back in, like, 78 or whatever it was. And so I rode that for a year when we first started racing or whatever, and no big deal. Got, you know, 500,000 different second places on it because all the kids, the, the, the one kid in Arizona that was winning was on, a monoshock YZ60. And, Who's that? Um, I, I can't even remember his name at this point. Um, his nickname was Mouth. I don't even know why, but that's the only thing I can remember from it. But so I finally got a, a YZ60 and I started winning. And then that was like my first taste of like winning. And I was like, ooh, like I really like that. That's pretty cool. That's fun. Um, so. I started being just like crushing it in Arizona and then we were friends and you were, this is a blast from the past. You remember Troy Blake who yep. was, yep. you know, 
factory superstar, mini bike kid. And his parents were like, hey, you should come over to California. There's a race this weekend at Indian Dunes, and it's a big race, and you should, you guys should come over and, and see how you do. So I was like, oh, man, that's, this is going to be awesome. We're going to go to California. You know, I've never been there before, so that's pretty cool. So we went to Indian Dunes, and I got my ass handed to me so badly by a kid by the name of King Richard Saxton. And uh, it's funny because we all ended up being friends later on. But I remember just getting whacked. Was Kyle Lewis but, in that in that in your no, class? No, Kyle was because this is I was racing like a six to eight class, and Kyle was at, like two years ahead of us, so he was in the nine to eleven already. And so I just got completely smoked, and I thought, you know, I'm I'm this fast kid from Arizona. I'm going to go over there and do this, yada yada yada. And I got worked. And that feeling that I had from that was like it just resonated with me. Like, okay, dude, you gotta, you gotta like do something because you don't ever want to feel like this again. So we came home and did some work and practiced more and yada yada yada. And we went to uh, went to the World Mini Grand Prix. It's uh, like four months later, and it was at Saddleback, and did okay there. And then it that just kind of started the whole process, right? So then I started doing really good on like the national level. And then Honda came to us and said, you know, somewhat because my dad had the relationship from the dealership, but said, Hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to have a 60 and we need someone to start testing it. So I started doing testing with HRA, um, and developing the CR 60 for Honda. Um, all the while I'm still riding a, a, a YZ 60 to race with, cause obviously the, the bike wasn't out. So then once the, you know, once the, um, uh, you know, once the bike came out, obviously I was riding Honda 60s and then I just then moved to riding 80 class too. So I was riding both the Honda 60 and the Honda 80 and then that was it. I was a Honda guy and obviously my dad had the dealership and everything um, and he didn't own it. He just ran it. And so obviously I stayed on Honda my whole amateur career, um, you know, and when I call it retired from amateur racing and moved up to the pro class. I was, I had won more amateur titles than anybody, blah, blah, blah. One more, you know, at the time I had the most championships at Loretta's, all this stuff. And, and now all those numbers have been surpassed massively. But at the time, like I had kind of done it all in the amateur ranks. Um, and I just turned 16 and we were planning on, you know, moving up and after uh, Loretta's going to race the last couple nationals, um, and we did, and first round at Millville <coughs> didn't go real great. I, I got a couple wake-up calls from a couple people. Um, I don't know, maybe they, they thought I was going to be a punk kid or whatever, but I got put on the ground a couple times in those first couple motos. Um, then the next weekend was Washougal, went to Washougal, and, and went top ten. And so I was like, okay. What year you know, was that? What year? 89. 89. Okay. So I did a couple. So I did a couple races in in uh, at the end of '89 after after Loretta's, um, and then you know you would figure like okay like I'm in line for for a lease of support ride, you know you had guys like Buddy and Fro and Gaddis and everybody you know who rode for Suzuki and Kawasaki uh, at the time, and those guys got taken right into the factory programs and they got you know bike deals, you know, I'm pretty sure they got salaries and, and whatnot. And we had a deal worked out with Honda, you know, and Honda made this massive, massive cut uh, 
to everything. And I want to say it was, you know, kind of ironic or whatever, or just when my memory serves me, I could be wrong, but I think it was like on, I think it was on Halloween. I think it was on on the 31st of October. They mm-hmm. called and said that they weren't going to have anything for me for the following year for me to turn, to move up and go pro. Do you think that happened because was that the year bail came the first year? I don't rem- I, I don't recall. I mean, they still, you know, they still have some guys, but you know, obviously, like, you know, Larry Ward had been on the team the year before, and he had moved over to, to Suzuki, and so there were some spots that were vacated on the team that, like, I could have filled pretty easily, right? Yeah, Guy Cooper too, uh, right? Yeah, and so, so I mean, it just, you know, obviously that sucks. You know, I, I spent all that time at Honda and won tons of championships for him, and. And I was like the clean-cut kid, dude. I wore all the Honda kit at all the races. You know, the, I you know I wore the polo shirt. I was the dorky kid that just had his nose down, just getting the job done because that's what I wanted to do. And you know, Honda was this premier program, and I just wanted to to do the best that I could. And so that was a super big blow to us, right? I mean, and then they didn't offer any support. Like, you know, okay, not that they're not going to give us factory support. They just said, we can't. We're not going to give you bikes. We're not going to give you any parts. We're not going to give you any support at all. And at that point, you know, you're like two months away from the the first round at Anaheim. Um, so... You know, certainly not the way it is today. I mean, if you have an amateur career like I had today, you'd walk straight into a $250,000 a year salary, like no questions asked, I mean, or, or more, um, because I was like the it kid, right? But it just, you know, I just, I fully got shafted on that one. I mean, I don't think any fault of any, I, like, I don't pose any fault to anybody at Honda. I think it's just one of those things that just, I mean, it's just life and business. That's just the way things go down sometimes. So, um, after that happened, um, I'm sure you and your family had to go home and put your head together and figure out, um, what was going to happen for the 1990 series year. Correct. And maybe real quick, you could just say, Hey, um, you know, tell us what you did. And if you just went out and bought bikes or whatever, whatever happened and maybe just do a quick little, uh, review. I mean, we were, we weren't a rich family by any stretch of the imaginations. I mean, my mom and dad both worked just normal jobs and whatnot. And so it's not like we had a lot of money sitting around. I mean, and all the bonus money I'd made during racing just went to going to the races. Like no one got travel allowances and stuff like that back then. Um, so, uh, I was riding for AXO and Jim Hale called and said, Hey, like, I know what just happened. He's all, I just bought a, a brand new CR125. I'm going to send it to Mitch's. I'm going to get the engine done, and and Bones will do the suspension, and I'll give that to you to to go race. And so that was it. That was my practice bike and my race bike. Um, and that's what we did, you know. We and I didn't, uh, you know, and then I didn't have a I didn't have a supercross track to practice on. Or at that point, hell, I'd never even been on a supercross track. So we, you know, got my, my AMA license and showed up at Anaheim and uh, went racing. It was the first time I'd ever been on a supercross track in my life. So how did, how did that? How did you end up that season? Like, where did you end up in the points? 
And, uh, uh, I want to. I I think I got maybe like seventh overall in the points. I got on the podium at the very first race of Anaheim, and I had a couple other podiums during the year. And then I I think I got second or third in the shootout at the Coliseum at the end of the season as well. So, I mean, I I rode pretty good for. You know, basically, I was still going. Hell, I was still going to school full time. You know, I was a senior in high school, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I still did pretty good for not getting. To, I, mean, I, I never practiced on the Supercross track the entire year. We just we would go to the races on the weekends, and each time that's when I would see the. Uh, you know, that's when I would see the Supercross track. So that was kind of my experience for it. Uh, the first Supercross season. Then in the 91, things kind of changed it up. You know, people recognized who you were. They respected what you were doing. And then came knocking DJ, uh, was it? D- DGY. DGY Yamaha for yeah. you and Doug Henry. is That was the team? Yeah, well, no, it was uh, it was myself and... Um, McClear, right? Eric McClear? Well, it was myself and Jeremy and, and Joe Lawbreck on the... That's right. Uh, on the West Coast. And then it was McClear and Henry on the East Coast. And so I rode for them during 91 and 92. So did Doug. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was like it, for us, we were stoked because we were getting free bikes again. We had a parts allowance, um, you know, and we got 500 bucks for each race for, for like, a travel allotment. Um, no salary, still no salary, whatever, and they controlled your gear and everything. But it was like, okay, well, shoot, it's not costing us a ton of money now to go to the races. And if I do really well with Yamaha contingency and everything, you know, it, it won't cost money to go do events. Um, you know, and it, it didn't put a strain on my on my parents' checkbook the way that it was. So, yeah, so 91 was, was great and went out and, um, did okay. The bike was pretty underpowered the first year. Um, but, you know, kind of got through it or whatever and, you know, had some moderate success at the, at some outdoor races. We couldn't go to all of them because we simply just couldn't afford to. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, then 92 came around and, and we got a huge, huge difference in 92. So in 92, um, Yamaha was doing our motors, so we basically were getting works engines. We were getting really good stuff from KYB, um, and you know, at that point, then they were paying for all of our expenses to go to the races. Still, no salary, but they were paying for everything: lock, stock, and barrel. They hired a mechanic for me, um, you know, and, and Zach was my mechanic, and so uh, you know, we got a box van from them. I mean, now it became like okay, like I had all. You know, I had everything but a salary, and that was like for me that was awesome because my parents didn't have to spend any money anymore, and um, you know I was able to go out and race, and uh, you know I kind of contended for the championship in Supercross. I mean, I won a few races, but uh, Brian Swink, you know, he was the class of the field for sure. Um, you know, and he he wrapped the you know back then I think we had nine or ten races on the East Coast, and he wrapped it up a a, a one race early. But you know, I had uh, if I I won a couple races, I think the rest of them I was either second or third at every race, so I was able to make some money from uh, from the bonuses. You know, and then then they were actually real real factor bonuses from Yamaha, although uh, not like today because I think for a win back then you got like five grand for a win, so. 
things yeah. definitely changed. But it was, it was for me, that was like an awesome step in the right direction. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's pretty much when I started to get into the picture with Kyle Lewis. I used to come to the races and, and see things, and that's when I became friends with you um, and really started paying more attention to your career because I used to travel with your mechanic when you went to Suzuki for a couple of years. Um, and then, you, you know, you had your, your, your stand at Suzuki, and, you know, you rode both the big bike and the little bike, you know, the second yep. year. Um, I thought that, you know, you – Definitely, at the end of that deal, you got kind of the shaft. Um, and yeah. uh, after that, I think you ended up going to Europe. Yep. And uh, I think um, you were you were you came home from there, and I remember like, like it was yesterday being down at Pro Circuit, and yep. Yep. you talking to me, going, "Hey, what are you doing? I need a mechanic." And I was like, oh, "I got a deal." Blah blah blah. And you're all well. I'm putting this team together. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do that. And I was like, man. And uh, I think that was the beginning of the PJ1 team. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I remember, I, I, dude, I remember that night like it was yesterday being at uh, in the back of the old PC shop. Yep. And I was uncrating uh, YZ250s that I just picked up at Yamaha, getting them all built. Um, and you were trying to find was going on. I think you were working on, I think you were working on Scott Sheik's. Uh, RM125s or something like that, yeah. Correct. I'm like, oh, this guy just wants me to build his bikes. I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, but that was crazy. I mean, a lot of people don't know, but the the, the PJ1 program, that was all you, man. You, that, I think yeah. that's when you really got into your roots about, you know, where you're at today and how that came so natural to you about, you know, putting programs together and, and, and you know, we're dealing with sponsors and stuff like that. And, you know that from from the outside looking in. I mean, I I knew the uh, the inner circle of that program and how it went with Alex and his dad and everything. Yeah, yeah. For for you guys to do what you guys had to do to go racing, I don't think too many people would have. You know, it really. I think between you and the Great Western team, that was that was you know a lot of work, and you had to love the sport to do what you were doing. And of course, you guys over at PJ One and the Great Western guys wanted to do great on the weekends. Um, but you know, I think that was before, you know, Ricky came into the scene and the whole training thing got blown out. And, uh, there was a lot of, uh, good times going on back in those days, you know, traveling to yeah. the races on Saturday, you know, if, if it was super cross, you know, you get in on, you know, you get in on Thursday, you ride press day on Friday, go out to dinner, maybe hit, hit, hit up a strip club, do whatever the hell was going on. But, uh, man, boys are different today. Yeah, it's definitely different, and you know, to to the point of the PJ One team, I mean, none of that could have happened without Alex and his pops. Um, you know, but uh, but is I mean, you know, I I'd been in Europe, I I'd done pretty well uh, over in Europe riding for riding for Honda, and you know, I, I had the opportunity to come home, and Keith McCarty gave me you know gave me a lot of help on the alcohol side, and I knew. I knew if I stayed another year uh, riding Grand Prix that that was it. I wasn't going to be able to kind of try to fulfill that Supercross dream of mine. Um, and I was making, you know, I was making a good living over there. But you know, I said, "Screw it!" You know, I'm going to come home and try to put this whole deal together. And and we somehow did. Um, you know, a lot of things fell into place the right way, and we went and did it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was, you know do everything you can to get to the races and, um, you know, get through the races, try to do as well as you could. And, um, you know, it kind of, it kind of fizzled out towards the end of the year and our, our big program went to a pretty small program. 
Um, but, you know, we, we got it done, and, you know, I ended up getting picked up by Chaparral the, uh, the next year. And, um, yeah, you know, and ha- had, some, uh, had some good results. So Yeah, I look back at those days, man, and, and I just remember, like, you know, we'd be at the outdoor races with Jeremy and Jeff, and those guys really weren't seeing eye to eye. But it was still funny because with, you know, McGrath had his group of friends, Fro had his group of friends, but all in all, besides Jeremy and and Jeff, everybody else was still cool with one another. And I'm not saying Jeff and Jeremy weren't cool. They were cordial, and we'd go to, you know, Havasu and, and party. And, hey, speaking of Havasu, I just got to drop this real quick. Yeah. If, if you're, anybody's ever, ever in Havasu and you run into any problems, remember this name, Ron's In-Your-Ear Audio. These guys can fix your boat, put a stereo in your boat, launch your boat, do whatever you need. Just remember that Ron's in your ear audio. If you're an idiot like me and you you get to the cove and you throw your you know your anchor out and you, you set your anchor and then you're in a hurry because you ran out of beer and you got to get back before the the dock closed, put your anchor away because if you just throw it in there without the padding, it's gonna go through the bottom of the boat if you hit chop. So if that ever happens to you, you have a fiberglass shop that can fix that. Ron's in your ear audio. So there's a, there's a promotional plug right there. Couldn't go wrong without that guy. But anyways, yeah, those, it, it's just, the, I just think it's so different now. Like, I mean, you're talking about 10 to 15 of the top pros on an off weekend. We'll all, all be together. I'll be together yeah. on three or four different boats. You had Budman on his boat. You had Phil on his boat. You had Jeff on his boat. You had Jeremy on his boat. And they were just yeah. full of riders. And everyone would be partying and getting along. And then you'd go to the races the following weekend, and everyone would be talking about what a great time it was. And you would, they would go out and battle. People would get taken out. But it's not like it is today. It's like the camaraderie of the riders and the respect and the attitudes that people have towards one another is totally different. Totally different. Yeah. It's 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 a shame really, you know, because like I said, I mean, you know, there was you know, the N C clan and the Fro clan, but the the thing is and Jeremy and Fro had their differences a little bit back then because oftentimes they were battling for the championship, right? But everybody went and had fun together, whether it was everyone riding pit bikes together or um going to ride in BMX or whatever it was. I mean, yeah, like everyone was able to, to really compartmentalize everything. It's like, okay, we're on the racetrack, we're at Washougal or we're at Seattle or whatever place that we are, or whatever stadium we're at. Yes. I don't like him. We're going to go race and we're going to bang bars and we're going to charge as hard as we can. And I don't want him to beat me. He doesn't want, you know, and vice versa. But you could still go to dinner with the guys after the races were over. Um, you could end up in Havasu on the weekends, which oftentimes on off weekends in the summertime, we, we would all end up there. We would, and hell, we would drive up to Riverside and pick up the guys and we would all caravan there together sometimes. So it, yeah. it's, it's way different. I mean, I don't, and I still don't totally understand it. And I, I get that, you know, things are a lot different these days. There's a lot more money. There's a lot more of um, there's a lot more of everything, but we, our group at least, didn't have to hate the other guy to go get the job done. I mean, we were able to to really separate that, you know. And um, you know, maybe it would work 
today for some guys. I mean, I think, you know, you, you maybe look at, um, uh, I think a guy like maybe like a Dean Wilson, for example. I think he's one of the guys that could probably hang out with whoever um, as long as he didn't have a problem with them, like a serious beef with them or whatever. And then probably, you know, go ride BMX or go do this or that with them and it not be a big deal. I mean, you know, but some of those guys, it's been bred in their minds so much as they come through the ranks that, you know, uh, you just can't do that. You know, you got to hate everybody on the track to go out there and race them like, uh, like you need to. I mean, Dude, I don't know how many times myself and Ryan Hughes have taken each other out on the racetrack, but we were still friends. Yeah, you know, it's um, crazy you say that. And then on any given weekend, you could be at a Supercross or an Outdoor National, and you would see a guy like Ryan Hughes sitting on Jeremy McGrath's bumper. You would see you over there sitting on Fro's bumper. You would see, you know, you'd never see Fro sitting on Jeremy's bumper. But no. you would see, no. you know, guys like Swink, you know, when he wrote for Honda Troy over there talking to you. I mean, it was yeah. always everyone respected each other off the track and on the track. It was all good. And it's crazy because this weekend after the race, we were tearing down and Pro Circuit was parked right across from us. And I looked over there and I seen Steve Lampson sitting over there with Mitch and Dean Wilson over there. You know, Dean wasn't drinking beer, but Lammy was and Mitch. And they were talking. And that really made me think like. Man, you just don't see that anymore. Like you yeah. don't see even like team members. You know what I mean? It's just crazy how how times change. But hey, there it happens. So you know, good, bad, yeah, or indifferent. It, it's, was, it is what yeah. it is. It is what it is. Yeah. So, anyways, I, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm happy to have lived in the in the time in which I did, and you know, race against the guys I got to race against, and you know the the semis are really really cool and they make things convenient but you know there's something to be said with you know jumping in a box stand with your mechanic and driving you know from race to race and going and practicing on on different tracks throughout the u.s and um you know i guess call it building that bond with your mechanic yeah i, I would agree yeah. i would agree i mean i i was you know from 93 until 99 i drove a box van and you know I that that you know having you know at a young age someone throwing me the keys in a gas car and saying hey you're you need to drive to New York by yourself when I don't, didn't even know how to get to San Diego from Venice you know I was kind of going whoa okay let's do it you know and it's it's crazy you don't have navigation on your phone you you break out the the old you know map and and, and scout it out and go but uh, like I talk to these mechanics nowadays, and you know they're bitching that they got an hour layover, that they're not going to. I'm just like, dude, I was gone for like four months at a time. Like yeah. there, and then yeah. when you got there, I mean, I don't sound like I had to walk uphill in the snow ten miles to get to school, but it's it's so different. But everything's different. It it, it all yeah. revolves in time. But uh, you know, getting back to your yeah. career, you know, you had a, a a pretty good stand at Chaparral, and yeah. that that from there you moved on to the factory Yamaha team. And, uh, I was, uh, you know, you, you had a, uh, you know, a really good career going for yourself. And, uh, then, uh, tragedy kind of struck at, uh, San Diego that afternoon. And, uh, it's just from, it, it's just, I, I can remember it like, you know, yesterday I was sitting like literally two seats away from your mom. And, you know, when that went down, it was like, ugh. I, I I couldn't even fathom what was going on at the time, thinking like, oh, he's gonna be okay. He's gonna be okay. And when I heard yeah. the news, I was floored. And you know, I didn't, you know, 
I know everyone reached out to you and, you know, you were in the situation you were in, but if you could talk about, you know, did that ever cross your mind ever? I mean, everyone says, oh, that's the chance you take every time. And we know that. But until that realization hit you that day, like what can you can you talk like the build up and what yeah, had happened and, you know, what what really went down? Yeah, I mean, the, the odd thing about my injury is so when Bailey got hurt in 86, um, I was actually at the track and I was at. I was at the fence watching practice, watching those guys practice, and I saw David crash. And it looked like, okay, he just kind of went over the bars or whatever, no big deal, you know, and then, you know, and he was like one of my idols, right? And so then that devastation of that, like, kind of hit me a little bit as a kid. I was riding mini bikes at the time. And it was the only thing that I ever, like, not scared of, but that resonated in your mind. Um, it was like, man, you know, that's the only thing I don't ever want to happen to me. Um, you know, and then, you know, fast forward, you know, fast forward 15 years and, um, you know, and it happened to me and I, it was a super slow crash and, you know, I went down in, in a little set of whoops, first lap of practice, second practice of the day. And just, you know, I hit my head wrong and, it, you know, it went cold and numb, and I was face face down in the uh, in the whoops, just going, man, you got to be kidding me. This is how I'm going to go out. This, and I knew, second I hit the ground, I knew what what had happened. And um, yeah, man, it was it was scary. It was just it was brutally scary because you know you're screwed, right? It's not like, oh man, you know, I broke my femur. Shit, I'm going to be out for you know three, four months, six months, whatever it is, you know, but I'll be back. It's like, no, dude, I just got paralyzed. I'm pretty much effed. Um, but, you know, for me, fortunately for me, um, you know, I was able to kind of slowly but surely get get most of everything back and, um, you know, get through rehab and, and, uh, and whatnot pretty well. And I, and I still have problems today. I mean, there's, you know, there's, it, it just kind of is what it is. There's there's things that you deal with on a daily basis after you've been paralyzed, no matter how good of recovery that you that you have that that you have to deal with. And so, um, but you know, I'm pretty blessed and fortunate that um, that you know God gave me a, a second chance to use my arms and legs, and um, you know, I try to put them to the best use that I can as as often as possible. That's for sure. So when 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 this happened and and you're laying there and you're, did you think like I'm never gonna walk again? Was it like the was those like the first thing or were you like you know what I'm jacked right now but you know what I'm gonna beat this or how when um, when did that when did that come into play like when you're like all right all right I, you know okay so you know everyone's been in this, this spot right you're you know, you're drunk or you're this or you're that. You're, you're praying to God, right? You're like, oh, God, don't. Just get me through just this and I'll me, never, get, I'll never get, do it again. <laughs> get me out of this one, man. That type of thing, right? And I remember going, all right, so my arms don't move, my legs don't move. And I remember praying to God and going, man, just give me my arms back. Just give me my arms back. I and I'm thinking this while I'm laying on the ground, 
uh, in Qualcomm Stadium. I'm thinking this, God, just let me get my arms back. Just give me them back. Like I see Mitch, I see David. They live what looks like they live pretty good lives, and they're paralyzed, but they can use their arms so they can get themselves around. And I'm like, just give me my arms back. That's all. That's uh, I'm not going to be greedy. I'm not going to ask for everything. Just give me my arms so I can use my arms one day. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, I didn't ask for the world. He gave me everything. So, um, you know, sorry for people out there that don't believe or whatever, but, you know, I'm getting a little spiritual with you right now. But, you know, that was, you know, that was a deal I was trying to make, and he, he did me one better. So um, it's it's kind of hard to put it all into words because, I mean, it is super surreal. And when you can't move, man, it um, man, it sucks. It sucks so bad. And every time I get a phone call, um, obviously not with the road recovery and everything, every time I get a phone call from a, a parent or a girlfriend or a spouse or this or that, you know, you're just like, it's, it's so devastating because um, obviously my arms and legs didn't come back instantaneous. I mean, I was paralyzed for a while, and, and the life that you're living while that's going on is tough. And, you know, it, like I recognize it, it, how difficult the journey is going to be for these for these kids to get hurt. Um, and, man, it just breaks my heart every time. Yeah, you know, it's 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 crazy, you know, that the – the injuries that are that are happening, I think now more than ever, um, with motorcycles, um, you know, and these kids are trained at such a young age to get on these bikes and go ride and go do this and do that, and they're going to be the next guy out there. But what what I'm really trying to focus this podcast and a lot of other things I'm doing is that there's 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 something more than life than racing a dirt bike. Um, prepare yourself for life. Okay, motorcycle is a tiny motorcycle racing. It's just a little part of life, and it's just a little window. Yeah, a and little it's, tiny window. It's, even if you have, even if you have a Ricky Carmichael, Jeremy McGrath, Ryan Villapoto, Ryan Dungey career, you know what I mean. If you make it for ten years in this sport with hardly any injuries or making a ton of money or whatever it is, it's 10 years. And, and 10 years, 12 years, 15 years even, goes by in a blink of an eye. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a very it's a very short piece. I mean, you know, you're, most people aren't John Dowd. They're not going to be racing dirt bikes when they're 39 or 40 years old professionally. So, and and you got a lot of living. I hope you do. I hope you have a lot of living after after those years, you know. But yeah, it's a tiny little window of uh, of opportunity, it, but it's not you know it's not everything in life. That's for sure. Yeah, I know a lot of lot of uh, you know people that I've seen around this industry through the last fifteen years that have come and gone, and riders that come and gone, and you know injuries that affect these guys and. The, the money that people make, you know, when they when they make, you know, they get a ride and they, they make, you know, a decent amount of money for a year, they think they made it. You know, they think, oh, man, I'm, I'm in. I'm set for life. But, you know, there's there's been numerous guys out there that have raced and had great careers that didn't make enough money to retire. So what I'm trying to get at is we need to educate the youth and the people in this sport. You know what? That 
there's more to life than just racing. Have something to fall back on it. Because realistically, if you look down the line at an outdoor national and there's 40 guys on the line, there's probably two to three guys out there that are going to be able to retire and not worry about work again and be financially set. But saying that, you only can do that, not work, and you you go crazy. You're just not going to sit home and travel the world and do this the rest of your life. You need to have yeah. something else. You're going to turn into a drug addict, an alcoholic, whatever. And that's what I, you know. I, that's why I wanted to get you on this podcast because I think you, what you have done with your life after racing, after being paralyzed, coming back from that, then saying, you know what, you know, maybe let's talk about the road to recovery and, and how that all started, and you know what the foundation is and what it's about and how it gives back to the uh, to the injured riders. Yeah. So. Um... So, obviously, I got hurt in January of 2000, um, and I was doing my rehab in Arizona. And so, early summer, so, like, maybe July or something like that. So, I'm still in the hospital doing rehab. Um, At this point, I'm starting to come around a little bit, right? Still in a wheelchair and whatnot. And uh, Bob Moore, um, who, you know, many of you guys know is, uh, you know, 1994, 125 world champion and, you know, tons of accolades and whatnot through his racing career, uh, who I actually now work side-by-side with at, at Wasserman. Um, you know, he uh, was living in Arizona at the time, and so and he was going to the races on the weekends, and he would stop by my hospital uh, every Thursday or every Friday, depending on Supercross or Outdoors, and just stop by for an hour and say hi and visit with me and whatnot, as, as a lot of people did, uh, thankfully, for me. And through through him stopping by, you know, we started talking about my injury and, um, you know, what it did uh, to me and what the effects were and how it, like, was hard on the family and it's really hard on your checkbook uh, and it's no matter how good adventure you have and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, myself... Uh, Bob Moore and Bob Walker, who was a friend of Bobby's um, from Arizona, uh, who now is in the sport and does things in the sport. Um, uh, we all went to dinner one night and we said, hey, let's create a foundation because you're not the last one that's going to get hurt. And there's going to be other kids that are going to get hurt that aren't going to have the, the notoriety and fame that you've had that people aren't going to come out of the woodwork to help and support either financially or emotionally or however. Uh, And we could put this thing together to really provide a a really strong foundation for guys to get injured, serious injuries. We're not talking about broken bones, this and that. We're talking about head traumas, spinal injuries, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know, we were we were sitting there and, and at this restaurant in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we came up with the name and the logo at dinner one night. And so we put the foundation together. Uh, and in the beginning, it was it was a reactive foundation, right? It wasn't proactive at all. So we had the foundation. We set up a five hundred one c three. So it was a total nonprofit. And when someone got hurt. We sprung into action. We would go raise as much money as we could, and then we could give. X, Y, Z rider, whoever it was, all this money that we raised, and they would have no tax implications, right? And then we would try to assist them 
through what I had gone through, you know, if it was a spinal injury or whatever, I could like walk then the family through it, like, Hey, this is what happened to me. Um, and just provide, you know, um, a culture, uh, around them to, to help them kind of get through this. I mean, it's emotionally, it's devastating. Um, and so we did that for a few years. Um, and again, very reactive to things. And, uh, you know, we would raise money at our golf tournaments and whatnot, and it's like, okay, well, Ernesto just got hurt. Let's just focus all the money. We're going to give Ernesto all the money, or James Marshall, or whoever it was at the time. Um, and then my mom uh, ended up retiring from her normal job, and I said, hey, we really need some help in, in growing the foundation and raising money all the time during the year so that we can start to build up an endowment so it's not like someone gets hurt and then we got to spring into action to give them money so that we have an endowment that we have the money in the bank so when guys get hurt, we can pay them. We can pay some of their bills. We can help uh, outfit their house, whatever it may be. So she came on and started working full-time, and that's like what everyone sees at the Supercross races now are the road recovery tent, which is set up kind of in adjacent to, to the monster guys as, as they – are one of our big uh, contributors and, and so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, that was towards kind of the late 2000s, you know, like 2007, 8, 9, somewhere in there. And since then, you know, since my mom came on board and we brought more people onto the board of directors, you know, we now have built a, a, a fairly nice endowment that when a rider gets hurt, a career-ending injury, um, we can help them out. Um, Ian Treadle, when he got hurt a few years back, 2011, uh, his head injury at uh, at Daytona, we had the money there for him, and we, you know, we asked him like, "How do you want us to pay this for you?" And they they needed rehab paid for, so we paid for uh, I think a year's worth of rehab uh, for him to help him get him back on his feet and provide as much information and and whatnot to the family. And, and we actually now have preferred rates with a lot of, uh, with a lot of rehab centers. So, you know, over the course of 15 years, since I got hurt, you know, we've been able to really establish this thing and grow it into a, into a large entity that we can actually really go out and do really good work when guys get hurt. Um, there's a kid that got hurt not too long ago, Todd Craig, that, uh, uh, you know, it was a licensed AMA pro, got hurt, and they needed their house retrofitted so that a wheelchair would work in their house, and we were able to go pay for that. Yeah, that's, um, that's so, that's, and, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, and so, I mean, that's, that's you know, that we, we had a goal, we had a vision. I mean, I wish we had $10 million in the bank so that when guys, uh, when guys got a career-ending injury, we could pay them five grand a month forever. I wish we were at that point. Unfortunately, we're not. Um, because, you know, the, the, you know, back to your point earlier about being ready for life after motocross, a lot of these kids aren't, you know, a lot of them drop out of high school or homeschool and then they don't really do it. And so they're not really prepared for what that next step is going to be in life. And then when you throw a, a huge, massive injury into the middle of that, you know, then they're going to be in even, even worse situation because now they're, you know, now they're possibly not educated. They're they're not ready to do anything. And physically, oftentimes maybe they really can't do that much, and they're really limited, you know. And um, we, you know, we're trying to to do all that we can so that we can help um, minimize 
that, uh, you know, that gap that we have right now. And I, I know that eventually, you know, maybe it's not today, maybe it's 15 years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, but I know eventually we will get to that point that we'll be able to provide that for, for these guys when they do get hurt. But, you know, we're just not quite there yet. Yeah, I think that's that's awesome that you turned a huge negative that happened to you in your life and in your career into a positive to to really help others. And, you know, that's what this podcast is about, too. It's for people to be educated on all different kinds of stuff in this sport that people don't really know about. They only know about the, you know, the, the money, the, the glory, the TV, this guy's on top of the world. But you know what? There's a lot of dark stories that a lot of people don't know about, you know, and, and, I, and, yeah. I, and I, you know, I know that from, you know, the programs that I've worked with throughout the years that were big supporters of the road to recovery. And, you know, I can't speak for other teams, but, uh, or other athletes or, you know, but, you know, I think it would be pretty cool if, if every pro, you know, if it was, you know, everybody that raced took part of their winnings, they have a hundred bucks if you're just a 20th place guy and put it into this fund and, and, you know, did it without people telling them to do it. You never know. You might need that money someday. But these guys are all, everyone's so worried about what's in front of them. They're not looking down the road. But that's a whole other topic. But, uh, you know, last thing I want to close this with is, uh, and I think this is pretty inspiring. Um, can you let the, can you talk to us about uh, your ride across America? Because a lot of people um, probably don't even know about this. And I thought that was, uh, you know, even with a, with an injury halfway through where you, you went down and you still, you, you, you accomplished your goal. And I think that's pretty amazing yeah. what you did. Yeah. So I, you know, kind of going back to being super thankful for, you know, what God allowed me to, to get back in, in the way of movement. I was, I was sitting at home on that. It's a story I've told a million times. So I'm sitting at home Thanksgiving night, uh, 2009, and I'm watching something, it's it, it like 2020 or 60 Minutes or something like this or whatever program it was. And uh, a guy on there was doing something to give back because he'd gotten a second chance. You know, and I start thinking to myself, you know, that's, you know, what the hell have I done, you know, since I got hurt? And, you know, besides road recovery, which I, I just think that's just something that you have to do, right? But what have I done, like, beyond that to really go out and do something? You know, at that point, I, you know, I'm an agent now in the sport, and I'm helping to kind of guide the careers of guys and, and try to give as much expertise that I have from from things that I've done right and done wrong in my life and my career. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, what can I do? And so I start thinking, I'm like, you know, I wonder, man, I could maybe ride a bicycle across the U.S. somehow and, you know, people could donate, and I could donate all the money to spinal cord research or whatever. And so, and, and you know my old trainer, Corey, pretty well. And so I called Corey up, and he's living in in, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina now. And I call him up, and I'm like, hey, you know, what do you think? Do you think I could ride a bicycle across the U.S.? He's all, yeah, of course you could. He's all, it's going to take you a long time to get prepared for it. But uh, he's all, yeah, you could totally do it. You know, I'm sure he's thinking there's no way in hell he's ever going to go through with this, so I'll just tell whatever I feel like telling him. So I'm like, all right. I go, well, if I do this, will you do it with me? He's like, yeah, sure. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm down. So the next day I go into my garage, and I hadn't been on my spin bike since I got hurt. And, you know, I 
get the old cycling shoes, I clip in, I jump on the spin bike, and I make it, uh, I must have made it 10 minutes maybe, and my legs were spasming like crazy, and it was bananas. I'm like, ah, might have bitten off more than I could chew here. So, nevertheless, you know, kind of fast forward a number of months and whatnot, and I'm, you know, I'm building up, building up, getting stronger and stronger. And um, so, you know, a year and two months later, we start this ride from Qualcomm Stadium, which is where I got hurt. We started it on the Sunday morning after the San Diego Supercross. And we're going to go to Daytona. Um, just, I don't know why, well, I, I picked Daytona because it's on the other side of the country, and I just think Daytona's really cool and badass and I want to race there one time. So that was cool. So it's like, okay, we'll go to Daytona and we're going to raise all this money as much money as we can. And we're going to donate all the money to the reserve Ice center for spinal cord research. And that's what we did, you know, myself and Corey and a lot of people volunteered and rode with us here and there. And we jumped on our bikes and, um, you know, it took us 43 days to get across the U S and, uh, I had a, a few extra days downtime because I fell down in, uh, in just outside Houston and broke my elbow and had to get it operated on. So we had like four or five days of downtime while I got it operated on and got back on the bike and finished the ride. And uh, we raised a quarter of a million dollars for spinal cord research. And, you know, we were able to, uh, to, to donate that. And um, yeah, I mean, it was a cool life experience and, um, you know, something that, uh, I don't know, hopefully maybe one day I can do something like that again, but, uh, it was a pretty, pretty cool thing. Yeah. That's, that's breathtaking. If you ask me, I mean, that's pretty amazing that you could go do that. So kudos to you and everything that you've done. Um, and we're going to end it with this. Let's talk about Jimmy button today, what you're doing. And, you know, I look at it like you're still giving back. You're still, representing people you're trying to help people so if people don't know what 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 are you up to today like what's your 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 job and your career and uh talk about your family a little bit yeah so i'm a i'm a sports agent if you will i mean that's the easiest way to look at it so i i represent uh motocross guys freestyle motocross guys and auto racing um so basically if it's got an engine uh i'm working on it um and I do some other stuff, just depending on what it is. You know, I, we have a, our agency, Wasserman Media Group, is the largest sports agency in the world. We have uh, more clients than IMG or anybody else globally, whether it's golf or cricket or uh, soccer or baseball, basketball, kind of you name it, action sports. You know, we are the largest agency, so we have offices all around the world. Um, but I, I am very specific in motorsports. Um, I know where my expertise lies, and so I just try to stay within those walls. Uh, and so, you know, that's what I do on a on a day to day. I'm I'm trying to help these guys that I represent, try to help them um, maximize their career earning potential uh, when you can. And you know, and sometimes the job is trying to look out for their their best interests. Um, you know, when, when there's a contract dispute or when you're doing a contract or whatever it may be. Um, and you know, do you get it right all the time? No, you know, sometimes, you know, you don't make the best decisions, uh, but collectively you do it as a group to try to, 
you know, you try to look at all the uh, all the things going on and try to make the, the best educated guess on what's going to be the best path to, to put somebody on and and uh, stand by them and, and try to help them reach their goals, uh, no matter what that is, whether that's to win races, win championships, both, or whatever it may be. Um, and so, I mean, that's it. That's my that's my day-to-day these days. Um you know, I'm I'm pretty fortunate that I got a great group of uh, of athletes that I get to work with and, and call friends and and uh, and call clients as well. And um, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's a good gig. I, you know, when I first started doing it, right after I got hurt, um, I didn't really know what the hell I was doing, and you know, kind of uh, fake it till you make it type of thing. But uh, after 15 years and being around some some much smarter people than myself. Um, you know, you kind of got those smarts rub off on you and you learn a lot of things and, um, you know, you learn how to read a contract correctly and, you know, make legal changes to it that, uh, that you generally, you know, need a, uh, need an attorney for, but you learn from all those attorneys that are around you and, you know, you learn the ins and outs of contract law and whatnot. And, um, yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting gig. No uh, no two days are the same. Um, you know, there's it gets frustrating at times, especially with uh, with the industry that we all work in and, and live in and love. But uh, in the end, we you know you, you take the good with the bad, with uh, with the sport that that uh, that we all love, and just try to do the the best with it that you can. And in the end, um, I know that I've I have a number of clients that. Um, I've made very wealthy, and uh, and that's a good feeling that you've been able to help kids, you know, reach their financial and um, performance uh, dreams and goals. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And you know, being friends with you for so long, I know that you have a a really good support group with your mom and your dad and your wife Christy and Phoenix, yeah. your son, and you have a newborn, you have a new baby on the way, and you know, life sounds yeah. like it's going pretty good for Jimmy Button. Besides being laid up with uh, having back surgery, but yeah, I you know what I I, I can't complain. I mean, there's there's uh, you know I, I do some motivational speaking sometimes, and and the thing is this that I, I think everyone has to look at is you only get one lap around the merry-go-round. Um, are you going to make the right decision every time? No, uh, you, you're you're not, and you just got to make the best decisions that you can. And uh, what doesn't kill you probably will make you stronger. And you just got to get through it. And, you know, you're going to get kicked in the face, knocked in the dirt. You're going to get your lights punched out. But uh, you just got to get up and just uh, keep hammering at it every single time. Because, you know, where you think you're supposed to be is never where you end up. Um, and it's how you kind of deal and adjust with those those situations that um, that kind of end up defining who your life is. Uh, and and where you end up going with it. So um, I'm super blessed and lucky. Like I said, I got a great family, and uh, you know, just uh, just real fortunate when it comes down to it. Yeah, for sure. And you know, anyone that knows you um, and knows you as on a, a professional and a you know on a friend level is is definitely you know lucky to call you you know a good guy and a friend. Like you know, I could I can do that, and uh, I'm you know. Very thankful that I, you could come do this podcast and, and educate some people on what's, you know, the, what everything that you've gone through in, in, in life in general. And uh, I'd like to thank you for your time, JB. And 
rub that belly on the on the pregnant wife, and uh, we'll have a baby yep. girl here pretty quick. And you, she could join the club. She could, she could join our softball team because we got a bunch <laughs> of them out there with Willow and with Beak's kid and my kid. And you know, yep. just got to keep them away from the Merrill the Merrill boys. Yep. It'll be fine. There you go. But uh, yeah, Kenny, for sure. Likewise, and, and uh, we've known each other a long, long time. And me and you have bumped the bumped heads on a couple of occasions, but uh, but that's good, and we're friends, and um, we'll be friends for for a long time to come. But uh, I, I appreciate you giving me some time here, and uh, your podcast I listened to with Shane Best was pretty hardcore. Um, glad to see that kid's getting everything turned around. Um, but yeah. This was fun, and uh, thanks to everybody out there. And, you know, if you're at the races, you want to wrap out about old-school motocross or whatever, grab me, and I'll, I'll spend five or ten minutes with you, whatever, because uh, dirt biking's pretty cool. Right on, JB. Well, hey, take care. Tell Christy I said hi. Tell Steve Asafin. Yep. Keep up the great work. Love the guy. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thanks again for doing this. Okay. Take care, Kenny. Okay. See you, buddy. Okay. Thanks, Bye. James. Well, there you go, people. Jimmy Button. Let me know what you think. Hit me up on Instagram or Twitter at Vegas Dub. Give me some ideas what you guys want to hear. Any criticism is good criticism, positive criticism, negative criticism. I don't care. Hit me up. Don't hit me up. Listen to it. Enjoy. Until next time, talk to you soon.